Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to gather around your word. It's precious to us. We ask that as we lean in and as we look at your word, that by your spirit you'd bring clarity. That, Lord, you would not only bring clarity, but you'd help us to see, Lord, what it means for our own lives today, here and now. That we'd rejoice in what we see of you there. And we'd celebrate what we learn about ourselves there as well. In Christ's name, amen. Creation. We're going back to the start, to the place of beginnings. And that's a a helpful place to go when we're trying to understand something. There we find a, a true story told in an artistic way. Genesis celebrates the fact that God made the world, but it doesn't feel the need to explain all the details or answer all the questions we might have. What Genesis does say about God and man has been foundational to the Christian faith and to the storyline of the Bible. Here in Genesis, we find out creation is actually a a thought-out, large-scale work of art. And humankind is the masterpiece of God's good creation. Now, what's it all mean? And how does it pave the way for what comes next in the storyline? That's what we're looking at this morning. Genesis 1 and 2, it sets the stage for the storyline to unfold And understanding this first part will help us understand everything that follows. And it's vital we approach this book understanding that, again, it was not written to answer all of our modern-day questions. The author had an intent that he set out to accomplish, and it's important we try to discover what that intent is. Let's not ask Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to say more than than they do. But what do they say? Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights, let, let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. 
And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teems and and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And we'll stop there. Three things this morning I want us to walk away with as we we explore Genesis 1 and 2. One, God is the powerful creator of everything. We learn that from, from Genesis 1 and 2. Second, he created you to reflect him and third he created you to know him first god is the powerful creator of everything when we look at the storyline of scripture right away we we get a sense we see who the main character is it's god genesis means origins or beginnings and we're not told who god is or where he came from or anything like that We learn about God, or Elohim, this generic term meaning God, by what God does. Right away, we see God as creator. And we're immediately introduced then after to the spirit, the spirit or wind of God who's hovering over the waters. And if we're reading this for the first time, or if we approach this with childlike wonder, the anticipation might build. We're introduced to the creator God, and to his spirit who's hovering over the the deep. How will God take what is formless and empty? How will he fill this darkness and this deepness with something beautiful? How's he going to do it? How's he going to create something out of something formless and, and empty and dark and overrun by deep waters? This is an ancient story. It's important for us to remember. 
It's an ancient story that many believe Moses wrote, and I'm sure he at least compiled parts of this story, which would have been passed down to him. It's a story that stood in stark contrast, and still does today, stands in stark contrast to the creation accounts and the other narratives of other ancient Near East cultures, where gods of polytheism and mythology were personified in nature. For instance, we think of the Egyptian gods, the sun god, Ra. Or a story that stood in, in, in stark contrast was the Mesopotamian belief that in the gods of watery chaos. It shouldn't surprise us that other cultures have creation stories. Moses and the nation of Israel are saying, they're saying, here's the story of the true creator God. And he's not part of nature. Instead, he stands over and above nature. He speaks and things come into being. What does it stress? It stresses his power, his transcendence, that he's unmatched, he's unrivaled, he's sovereign over all. It's unrivaled glory. It's ownership and authority that belongs to this creator God. Again, we're we're learning about the God of the Bible by what he does. We're introduced to him right away in the beginning, that he exists, and he's a creator God. Now, all these attributes of God that I've listed already are understood from the creation account itself. We're learning the main character. So if this were a film, it would be the flashback at the beginning of the film, cluing us in to some important history before the story unfolds. And that's helpful, isn't it? We're then introduced to six days of creation, or what one author refers to as days in the life of God. Now again, we come with our questions, and we ask, wow, was this a literal 24-hour period, or were these periods, long periods of time? There's lots of debate about that. And, and I, I don't think it's important that we, we decide which it is. What's important is that we see that these are days in the life of God, and God is helping us understand how he created the world. He's breaking it down for us in a series of days. It's very artistic and poetic. It's historical, but it's told in a very poetic way. Remember what's happening. Remember, we're being told something true in a unique way. We're not used to that. We're told in a way that we can remember and run with. Most importantly, in a way that communicates truth about the creator, about our creator God. So like scenes to a play, the lights go out, and when they come back on, remember it was evening and it was morning, we have a new day. What lacked order, what lacked content, is suddenly filled with order and content, like an artist making broad brushstrokes. God creates, but instead of using a brush, He uses his spoken word. Think of it this way. Day one, light and dark. Day two, sea and sky. Day three, the earth and the ground. Then when we get to day four, what happens? He begins to populate day one. See, day one was light and dark. Day four is the light of the day and the light of the night, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then day five is populating day two. See, the sea and the sky are then populated with fish and birds. And, and day three is being populated on day six by land animals and humankind. Some have said art is the imitation of nature. If that's true, 
I think it is, then all artists are essentially plagiarists because God is the original capital A artist. And we live in God's museum. Everywhere we look, we see evidence of the divine fingerprint. Order and beauty. By the way, how do we know what beauty is? We ourselves reflect the creator, his creative genius. The author of Genesis believes that these events happened. That's important for us to understand. The story is communicating actual events, but again, in an artistic and even poetic way. Can you think of anything in our culture right now that's been doing this for years? The first thing that comes to mind is what the only, the only CD that's in my wife's car, and that is Hamilton. I've never heard her rap more than when she tells me historical facts about Hamilton. We know so much about Hamilton because of this uh, musical. This account is filled with metaphor and symbols and word pictures that help us understand what God was doing. Now, some people look for answers to questions Genesis isn't trying to answer. The story doesn't need to say everything and in an exhaustive way in order to be true and historical. So the author is clearly celebrating the fact that God made the world, and he doesn't feel the need to explain all the details of how God did it. What we walk away with, it's clear as day, that God is creator. He created everything. He's powerful. He's above and over He rules over creation. Second thing we learn, God created you to reflect him, to mirror him, to image him. We learn this in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, when he uh, created humankind. It says uh, in, in, in 26, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock. Let us make mankind in our image. Does this speak of the triune nature of God? Or is God talking to some sort of heavenly council made up of angels and spiritual beings? There's debate about this. There's debate about basically every passage I'm reading to you today. I think we're giving clues to the complexity of God's nature in this statement. So the author goes from let there be to let us. Made in God's image. Interesting. Made in God's image. We reflect God like nothing else. That's what that means. We reflect God and we're meant to reflect God like nothing else. We're made to rule over creation and to be fruitful. To reflect God in all we do. Okay, now in ancient cultures, the king would set up images of himself as a visual announcement of who was in charge. Humans stand as a reminder of who is in charge. That God is the king of the world. That we represent his characteristics and rule like nothing else. We're his masterpiece, the pinnacle of creation. Our personalities, our ability to think and rationalize, our ability to relate to others in community, our creativity and morality, our authority over things. This is what makes All human life, so sacred. We're created in his image. God has made us like himself and for himself. So regardless of race, color, economic status, where you were born, or what you do, 
Listen, you have value and worth in God's eyes. You have value. He created you in his image. So we're to treat other people with value, with dignity and respect. Of all people on the planet, Christians should be treating other human beings with absolute dignity, with absolute value, because we know something about every human being. They're created in God's image. How do you treat those around you? Call this the 10-second challenge. You know, someone cuts you off. Within that first 10 seconds, how are you treating that person? (laughs) Someone says something rude to you. 10-second challenge. Oh, my. Can we remember? What if we remembered that person, regardless of how they treat me, regardless of, of, of how others have categorized them, they're created in God's image, and I'm to treat them with dignity and value and worth because that's what they have in God's eyes. Racism, abortion, genocide has their roots in a distorted view of humankind. We were created with purpose and meaning. We are not the products of chaos. We are not the result of an an accident. Creation is a thought-out, large-scale work of art, and humankind is the masterpiece of God's good creation. Seven times God says what he created was good. He's pleased with what he's created. And on day seven, the divine artist lays down his brushes and he rests. And that sets a pattern to follow and one that anticipates the final rest that will come in Christ. Genesis 2 is, is retelling. After Genesis 1, we, we hear Genesis 2 and it begins to retell the story of creation. And it zooms in, actually. It highlights the masterpiece of God's good creation in creating mankind. It's retelling chapters 1, verses 26 through 31. It fills us in on some really important details. We're not going to read the entire chapter for time's sake, but we're going to dip in and dip out. But the last point I want us to see this morning that comes from Genesis 1 and 2 is that you were created to know and to trust God. You're created to know him. We've learned that you were created to reflect him like no other, no other uh, created thing. We're created to image him and reflect him. We have value and worth. But I, I want us to hear, listen, we're created to know and to trust God. In chapter 2, verse 4, we see it, it refers to God this way. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So it begins to retell the story and zooms in. But listen, it doesn't just use the, the name Elohim, God. It, it actually it uses the term Yahweh Elohim. This is the personal divine name of God, which, would be, which usually would be mentioned when God is, is establishing a covenant relationship or announcing promises or calling his people to obedience. It's speaking of God's desire to have a personal relationship with with mankind, with humankind. And then in verses 5 through 7, it speaks of, of Yahweh God, of Yahweh Elohim forming. He formed 
He fashioned this idea of a potter bending down, fashioning clay into a particular shape, and then God breathed life into his nostrils. Uh, Let's read it. Now, in verse 5, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, had not sent rain on uh, the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed. He fashioned a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. It's just a picture the creator God on his, on his knees. It's just a picture for us to understand how personal God was getting and forming and fashioning man. What a beautiful picture. The God of creation, fashioning, forming man, like a potter on a wheel, breathing his own life into his nostrils. Again, it speaks of of how he wants us to know him and trust him. Man is given a royal or priestly status. He's placed in a sanctuary garden, paradise called Eden, which means pleasure or luxury or just the word lush. He's called to work the garden. He's spoken directly to God. This is interesting. Man is spoken directly uh, to by God. We were made to communicate with God. And then he's given a leadership role to walk out. And he's given clear commands to keep. I want to read these commands. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Will man, you know, we read this, will man trust God's definition of good and evil? Or is he going to define good and evil for himself? Is he going to push his way into a position that wasn't meant for him? Then we're surprisingly informed that something in God's good creation is not good. What's going on? Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It's a bit dramatic. Again, if we're reading this for the first time, it's a bit dramatic. Come on, what? what? It it's just takes us by surprise. How's God going to solve this unexpected problem? So the suspense builds, and he begins to parade creation in front of Adam. And they don't meet his need. They're not his helper. This, this fact that it's not good for man to be alone, it, it tells us that, that God did not create us to be in isolation. He created us for community. And in fact, that, that is something that reflects God himself, who is himself community. We believe in one God expressed in three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, And so God, his very being, is is community. And so in this beautiful way, within marriage and within the broader community of the church, we reflect God. God created the woman from Adam's side. He provided what Adam lacked. Adam was incomplete without her. Now imagine the joy that filled Adam's heart. I want you to try after he was put under uh, some serious anesthetic. I don't know what that looked like. And he wakes up, <laughs> and he finds the best gift that God could have given, 
And I think he sang these words on a guitar. Look at verse 23. It's definitely a poem. Then man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Chapter 2 ends with the man and woman naked, feeling no shame. Now, eventually, nakedness becomes a symbol of shame and vulnerability, but not yet. For now, it's a picture of wholeness, openness, and trust. We're left with a picture of God's original design. It's the way we were created to be. It's, It's what we long for. God's creative genius, his mighty work, his unrivaled authority, his personal involvement, his guidance, his love. God taking the dark, watery chaos and turning it into a beautiful garden and and placing humankind in this garden where they can thrive and be who they were called to be. But that's what we're learning about. It's beautiful. It's it's the the foundation. It's the the first part of this storyline. God is the creator God who created all things. And he created us for himself. He created us. We have purpose. We have significance and value in his eyes. We reflect him. We mirror him. We image him like no other created thing. He loves us. And he created us and fashioned us to be in relationship with him, to know him personally. He's trustworthy. This is the first part of this four-part story. Can we tell it? This was a, uh, a, an oral story that was passed down generation after generation. It's told in such a way that we get it. Six days of creation. And then on the seventh, he rested. Wow, that, what? I, can, I, can, I can speak that. And I don't have to tiptoe around all of these uh, questions that people come with. Oh, was that literal 24? And what else? You know, it, it, what's going? This is a beautiful account of a historical event told in a creative and artistic way that we can hold on to and run with and with glad hearts tell it to others. Creator God made us in his image and welcomes us into relationship. That's pretty sweet. The Bible is one unified story that leads us to Jesus. I, I have to read this passage in John. In John chapter 1, verse 1, knowing what we know of Genesis... Hear this. In the beginning was the Word. God spoke and created things. He he spoke and things came about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? He was with God in the beginning. Through Him. Through who? Through, Through the Word. All things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. By this time, if we are reading this for the first time, we have to be asking, who is the Word? Go on to verse 14. The Word became flesh. He made His dwelling among us. Literally, He tabernacled among us. God's presence was among us. We have seen his glory, 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. The Word became flesh. Jesus is the Word of God. Later, Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, our new representative. In Christ Jesus, listen, this is good, we are restored, we're recreated, we're made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, the Word of God having its way in our hearts, raising what was dead and caught in darkness to life, recreating us. You see how the story of creation matters? It matters. How do you view God? How do you view yourself? Keep going back to the start. Keep celebrating this true story told in an artistic way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this true and beautiful story. A story of of beauty like no other. Of artistic genius like no other. God, thank you for what we learn about you, for what we see of your character and your ways, but also thank you for what you teach us about us, that we matter to you. We're valuable to you. We have dignity and worth, and you've called us to yourself. God, thank you for your son. Father, thank you for Jesus, the word made flesh, who brings to life what has been dead and who recreates, who makes us new. We love you and we thank you for that work of creation, both at the beginning of time and the day you recreated us in your son. And we give you thanks. Amen.